Good morning. We're continuing to spend several weeks in Moses' three-sermon-long farewell address. Uh, You might remember from earlier in his life that Moses told God, who was in the form of a burning bush, God, I'm not that good at speaking. I'm not that good with my words. I I don't know if I can go to Pharaoh and ask him to let your people go. And, And as we go through the book of Deuteronomy and we listen to these three sermons that Moses has, you kind of have to wonder... Uh, Did Moses just get better at speaking between the time he told the burning bush that he wasn't that good at speaking? Because by the time he gets to Deuteronomy, he's given some pretty long sermons with a whole lot of good content uh, without seemingly much struggle. So did he just get better? Uh, Or did God come through on his promise that he made to Moses back at the burning bush that, that Moses, I gave you your tongue and I will give you the words that you need. And God continues to provide even in this moment in Deuteronomy. Uh, Or perhaps... Perhaps what we see uh, is that Moses, when he was speaking to the burning bush, was grasping for straws and excuses. Uh, That maybe he was already a better communicator at that moment than he wanted to let on. But you can't fool God. God knows what you've got because he's the one that gave it to you. And in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses continues in these sermons, he's now giving the people his farewell address, his final words, the opportunity for him to reflect on all that they had done together, the journeys they'd been on, the things they'd overcome, the challenges that had been difficult for them, and the challenges that they'd overcome with faith. And he's taking all of that, and he's giving it to the people as they prepare and to go in, across Jordan into the Promised Land under Joshua's leadership without him. Moses will only be able to look over to the land that they will cross into without him. And so as we look at these sermons uh, this month, and as we think about what uh, Moses is trying to focus on the most, we've talked a lot about how the things that he wants you to pay attention to are easy to find because he repeats them over and over and over and over again. And we know that for Moses that one of the key ideas is that they never forget that God is in control and God is king and nobody else is. And we know that that once you recognize that God is king, then the next thing that you have to do is stay close to God. And you do that in two ways. You stay close to God through obedience and relationship. And he calls them constantly to the law. And he calls them constantly to obey God's good commandments and statutes and teachings. That's the obedience part. And today we're going to start a couple of weeks of looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments lay at the heart of Moses' second sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. And as you think about the Ten Commandments, there's there's a lot that's there. Uh, Some of the commandments are rather easy to follow, generally speaking. Um, And one of the things that's very interesting, we tend to think of the commandments in a very heart and emotions kind of way. And so when when we're asked the question, have you broken any of the commandments lately, we tend to think of them through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't even call someone fool or rock or be angry at them. Uh, That is murder in your heart. And because we are on this side of that sermon, we reflect on these commandments in a very heart and internal and spiritualized way. But the reality is that these were just laws that people followed. And so to some extent, with these being the biggest laws, uh, if you could ask someone uh, in Jesus's time prior to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, have you been following the commandments in your life? It would not be hard to say yes. Because for Israel, these commandments were their felonies. Have you committed murder lately? Anyone in the room committed murder lately? If you have, please don't raise your hand. Just get an attorney and, and 
deal with that separately. Um, but if I ask you, how many of you have committed felonies this week? Again, maybe not raise your hand. Um, but when you think about breaking laws in that way, many of these laws are like that. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't give false witness. Don't lie to people. Those are things that most of us do for most of the days of our lives. Uh, I've been able to go uh, really more than the great majority of my lives without intentionally killing anyone. Um, and you might be impressed with me for doing that, but it's, it's, it's not been that hard. Um, but the commandments, uh, there's much more there if you really look at some of the deeper, as Dennis talks about, details that are there. And I want to spend a little bit of time in the next couple of weeks not hitting the obvious ones like don't kill and steal and murder. I want to look at some of uh, what's really happening in this law that God is giving his people so that they can orient their entire way of living around the reality that God is king, they're not, and they need to stay close to him through obedience and relationship. Because it's going to come through in these commands that we tend to just skim over as child's stuff. So when you look at the Ten Commandments, one of the things that you may know or you may not know uh, is, uh, go to the, the chart that's there. Um, how we number the commandments is actually not in Scripture. And so that's kind of open to historical interpre interpretation by both Jews and Christians. And so when you speak of uh, the fourth commandment, for us, we're talking about Sabbath, but for uh, Catholics, they're often talking about obeying your parents. How you interpret the first one and the last one tend to kind of order the rest of them. And so there's been a debate that's going, been going on for a very long time about how do we think about the order of the commandments. That may not be interesting to you. It, it really is uh, to me because uh, I'm a Bible nerd. Um, and Dennis, you're a Bible nerd. This will probably be interesting to you. And so how you understand the command that I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not take idols, is that one, two, or three instructions determines how you end up ordering all of these. Uh, historically, we're part of the kind of Protestant group over here that orders them uh, like the column on the left. But it's interesting that as we've taken these from the Jews historically, uh, that Judaism largely thinks about them differently than we do. And the Catholics order them even a little bit differently, uh, where coveting your neighbor's wife and his property are different instructions, not just the generic uh, don't covet things that don't belong to you uh, that we tend to lump them together with. And so you might want to know, why can't we just make all of these work by slicing it out into maybe 11 or 12? Because you actually could make them all fit if they were the 12 commandments. Uh, very easily, because where someone splits one and someone splits another, you split them in both lists, and, and you have the 12 commandments, uh, but we can't do that. And, and there's two really important reasons that we can't do that. The first one is uh, that we don't have 12 fingers, and the Ten Commandments need to match your digits, because this needs to be teachable to children, so you need to be able to put one on each finger. Uh, it's a very beautiful thing to have uh, ten things that match your ten fingers that you can teach to all of your children, and it's easy to remember and easy to recite. But even more importantly than that is that in Deuteronomy chapter 4.13, and also in 10 verse 4, uh, it speaks of the Eser Debar, uh, is the Hebrew word there, and it literally means the ten words. The ten words that God gave to Israel at Mount Horeb. 
And I really like that phrase. And whether you think about it as 10 words or the 10 speakings or 10 speeches, it kind of has that idea. Uh, commandments is, is really kind of a loose translation. And we do it because we know that they functionally are commandments. They are rules. They are instructions that we need to follow. But I love the idea of these as the 10 words. Because clearly there's more than 10 words in the 10 commandments. But the 10 words are what is given to Israel on Mount Horeb so that they can have this covenant with God. And when you think about the word of God, I can't help but go back to Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks and his words create. That God says, let there be light, and there's light. And he says, let the water and the land be separated, and the water and the land are separated, and the sky and the waters are separated, and there's all this different stuff that's happening all throughout the creation of the entire cosmos is done by the power of God's creating words. And in John chapter 1, we read that not only was God a part of that, but Jesus was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God, and it was with God. And the Word was there in the beginning, and, and through the Word all things were created. The Word became flesh. And we know that that Word that John speaks of is Jesus, who came in the flesh as a baby and died on the cross and was resurrected, and that that is done as the power of God's Word. So here we have, in the middle of Deuteronomy, the second sermon where Moses talks about the ten words that God gave Israel at the foot of Mount Horeb. And the power of that for me is that you see that God's word have the power to create. God's words have the power to bring Jesus into the world and bring salvation and deliverance. And God's words that are given to Israel have the ability to create this covenant through which they can come to be obedient to him. That God will be their God and that they will be his people. And it's done through the ten words. God Words create, God's words bring salvation, and these laws make a special relationship between God and his people. And they're not organized randomly. He wasn't just, God didn't just come down and give Israel these commandments and be like, here's the top ten in no significant order. They are in a significant order, and it's pretty easy to see once you see it. The first three are very clearly oriented around, and of course, as I say first three, I'm using the Protestant ordering of the commandments, right? But the first three commandments, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not worship idols. Uh, all of these, you shall not use my name in vain. These commandments are geared around our relationship with God. About our relationship with the Lord, the one who is worthy of being praised and worthy of being worshipped. We orient our lives first and foremost around our, our praise and giving glory to him. And then the last six are oriented around how we interact with other people, starting with our parents, ending with our neighbors, and then in between you don't kill, steal, or lie, or commit adultery. And if you get all that kind of right, you've got your relationship with others sorted out. And if you get the first three right, you've got your relationship with God sorted out. And the one that's kind of uh, the fourth one there, Sabbath, does both. And we don't usually think about it that way. In fact, we don't talk about Sabbath very much at all. In fact, it's probably the only commandment that we probably don't think is actually relevant to us today, and I don't really know how we got there. Sabbath is essential for the commandments because what Sabbath does in Scripture, it's rooted in God's creative history. 
Because God created the whole world in six days and rested on the Sabbath, we too rest on one day to remember that God is a God of rest and peace and harmony, that he's the one who can do it all, but that he wants to invite us into his peace. Sabbath has the function of giving Israel a time to stop work, to stop trying to get ahead in life, to stop focusing on everything they need to do, want to do, have to do, and instead to focus on God. But the incredible thing about Sabbath, and it comes through over and over again in the commandments and the laws, when Sabbath instructions are given, it's not just for the wealthy class, and it's not just for Israel. It's for the strangers among them. It's for their neighbors. It's for the servants, the men, the women, the sons and daughters, even the livestock get a Sabbath. It's for everybody. And it's a special thing to think about what it would be like if an entire country We don't even have this in our country anymore. On Thanksgiving and Christmas, people still have to go to work today. But in Israel, every Saturday, it didn't matter if you were wealthy, poor, if you were a servant, if you were a master, if you were a male or female, it didn't matter who you were. You got to rest. And you got to rest and be at peace with each other and at peace with God. It had implications for the relationship with God and the relationship with others. God orders these in such a powerful and beautiful way that it's very clear that he's doing this with great intention. That His design is that Israel would become this special people living among other peoples. They would be making a very clear statement, God's way is different than your ways, and you can see it in the way that we live among you. And as you're about to go into the promised land, where there's all kinds of people doing all kinds of practices that are not God's way, they need these laws to orient themselves in right relationship with God and right relationship with others. And if you can do that, God believes that they can become a transformative community of people drawing the world to Yahweh, drawing the world to the Lord. But all of this is rooted in a very particular story. The commandments don't take place in a vacuum. They take place within a very specific historical moment. And so we go into the details. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 6, in the very first words that begin these ten words, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These words are words that we often just skim over before we get to the rest of the list that we focus on so much. But as God describes who he is and what he's done, we need to stop there because that's the anchor for the entire set of teachings that God is about to give to his people. Before you even get into the instructions, you have to know that God is the God who brought them out of Egypt and brought them out of slavery. He's not just giving you his title Hey, I'm the the grand champion of bringing you out of Egypt. He's not just clarifying which God it is. You remember me. I was there in Egypt when you were slaves. I helped bring you out. I'm that one. It's not a title. It's not clarification. What God is doing is anchoring the entire relationship that he's trying to establish through these commandments with Israel. What he's trying to do is anchor all of that into this foundation. I am going to give you rules and you are going to follow them because I delivered you. I'm your deliverer. I'm the one who rescued you from uh, from the oppressor. I'm the one that brought you out from under Pharaoh's control. 
And if you look at our Constitution, our Constitution also begins with its own anchor, with its own set of foundational principles that guide the rest of the document. If you look at the Constitution of the United States, our founding legal document, here's how it begins. It gives the reason for the entire endeavor, the entire effort that continues to be our country today, as it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general warfare, welfare, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. What's the purpose, the anchor, the foundation of the rest of the Constitution? It's these things, justice, peace, security, health, freedom, are the foundation that everything else in that document is built on living document that continues to try and ever increasingly do that in a changing world. But that's the anchor of our country. But when you look at the Ten Commandments, Israel's founding document, their constitution, the beginning of this relationship with Yahweh as he becomes their Lord and they become his people, staying close to him through obedience and relationship, it starts with this. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery. That's the anchor and the foundation that the rest of it grows out of. And he says, the laws you are about to receive, and this is all really there in the the margins, the laws you are about to receive will make me your God and make me your people because I delivered you. You must remember that you used to be under Pharaoh's cruel reign. You remember the stories of how bad it was, life under Pharaoh? Well, this is how good it's going to be when you submit to my reign, my kingship. Remember that you were once slaves and now you are your own people because I, God, brought you out. The ten are anchored to God's deliverance of the people from oppression. And if you think about the contrast between life under Pharaoh and life under the Lord that comes out and and is revealed in these commandments, these ten words, Pharaoh believed himself to be God, to be a divine, immortal being that would in his own way be worthy of worship and had to be followed absolutely by all of his subjects, whether they were willing subjects or not. Pharaoh had temples that were filled with idols. Pharaoh would not give his slaves rest. Moses' original request when he got to Egypt was, Pharaoh, let us go out in the wilderness and take a weekend to worship our God. Give us a break. Give us a holiday. Give us time to connect with God and each other in the wilderness. And that is what Pharaoh rejected first. Because in Pharaoh's oppressive regime, you don't get a break. You don't get a rest. There's no Sabbath in Egypt. Pharaoh stole their freedom, stole their labor, stole their wages. He committed the murder of innocent babies to prevent a deliverer from being raised up among them so that Moses was hidden in a basket and floated down the river. Thou shalt not kill. Pharaoh lied, failed to keep his word, would say you can go and would change his mind later and say "Ah, you can't go. False witness all over the place. He coveted and took whatever he wanted, whether it was his or someone else's or another people's freedom. He could just take it. 
But God's laws make this very clear. My kingdom will not be like Pharaoh's kingdom. I delivered you out of Egypt. And it then becomes this instruction, not just about who God is, but how the people are going to live. I did not bring you out of Egypt so that you could keep living like Egyptian slaves. So stop worshiping Pharaoh. Stop worshiping idols. Stop practicing all the immorality that was common in Pharaoh's Egypt. Don't live like that anymore. And he says, not only do I not want you to live like slaves, I did not set you free from Egypt, got you out from Pharaoh's rule so that you could come here to the promised land and start treating other people like Pharaoh treated you. Did you like it when Pharaoh killed your children? Then you shouldn't kill other people. Did you like it when Pharaoh wouldn't ever let you rest? Then you better give your employees, your servants, your household a day to rest every single week. You cannot be Pharaoh to other people because I brought you out of there so that you could be better than him. And ultimately, God does all of this hoping that that with the intention that this people would become this alternative community, living in a pagan world that would cause the pagan world to go, huh, well, that is different. Look at how God lives among them and his teachings are on their lips and they know who he is and it changes how they treat one another. That people, boy, they don't look like Egypt at all. They don't look like us at all. I want to go see what that's about. God had this vision that when his people lived as this intentionally alternative a community that was unlike anything else that the world had seen, that the world would draw near to see what God was all about, who he was as the king of a people who could live like this. Because I delivered you from Egypt, God says, I want your gratitude directed upward towards me. And this is the first four commandments. Because I delivered you from Egypt, I want your gratitude and loyalty directed upward by making me your God and never worshiping idols, not thinking that there's other gods out there that are worthy of praise or anything else. I don't want you to be taking my name in vain and belittling me and using my name to talk about things that are not of me. Don't do that. I want your worship and your devotion. Why? Because you used to be slaves and now you're not. I want your worship and your loyalty because of that. I want your gratitude directed upward. But that's not it. The commandments continue from Sabbath to not coveting. The rest of the list, the last six, and I include Sabbath twice, and I know that. It's 10, it's not 11. Fingers. Um, Last six are directed, not upward, but it's God saying, if you're going to be my people, I want you to direct your gratitude outward by paying it forward. Because I delivered you from Egypt, you treat each other differently. Because I delivered you from injustice and oppression, you celebrate justice and treat people with goodness and kindness. You give people the rights that were taken from you in Egypt and I restored to you. So as we stand here at Mount Horeb and I give you my 10 words, here's what you need to know is that your gratitude and loyalty need to be directed upward and pay it forward. That's the 10 commandments. Jesus later is going to describe it as love God and love others. It all boils down to that. And that reality is there from the beginning, and that reality is there because of the anchor and the foundation of all of it, which is rooted in deliverance. God saves, so we give him our loyalty upward and pay it forward. You don't treat people the way you were treated in Egypt. 
God delivered, now pay him back by paying it forward and create this community that changes how the world sees you and how the world sees God. And the reality is today that as Christians, most of us not uh, Israelite or Hebrew or Jewish in our our nationality or ethnicity and our our heritage, uh, that we claim the Exodus not by our birthright, we claim the story of the deliverance from Egypt, not because we inherit it through, through birth or by blood, we inherit it by faith. That it was for God's people, and as we as God's people have been grafted in through the sacrifice of Jesus, we claim that story by faith. Uh, but it's really still Israel's story of deliverance. But for Christians, we have our own story of deliverance, don't we? Do we not even have a, a greater story of deliverance and salvation, one that is rooted in the word who became flesh and was crucified on a cross and resurrected on the third day so that we might be saved. Saved from sin, saved from death, saved from a life of futility of worshiping all the false gods and idols that this world was filled with, called to be part of his kingdom, heirs and co-heirs to his kingdom for all of eternity. That's our salvation and deliverance. And so here how the New Testament talks about this. In 1 John, John is writing, and he says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. What happened? God loved us. How did he love us? He loved us in Jesus Christ, in his birth, death, and resurrection. God loved us first. So now what do we do because of our great deliverance from God? We direct our gratitude, our loyalty, and our love upward, and then we pay it forward. It's the same thing. Israel's was anchored in their deliverance from Egypt. Ours is anchored in the deliverance of the cross. Because Jesus did what he did, we are going to be obedient to God as our king, Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. We give him our full allegiance, and we direct that allegiance upward, and then we pay it forward. Paul has a similar idea in Philippians where he's writing to the people in Philippi and he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And let me ask you, church, have you received anything good from being united with Christ? Did God come and give you deliverance and something good, some tenderness and compassion and love, some mercy, some grace? Did he give you more than you could have ever hoped or imagined? Absolutely. Well, if he did, then make my joy complete, Paul writes, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Because of what God did for us, you direct upward and you pay it forward. Of one love, united, of one mind, sharing in the spirit. If you've ever thought, the Ten Commandments are just one more set of religious rules I learned on my ten little fingers all those years ago. You've missed it. You've missed it. The truth is that they are an invitation to live in a special way because of a special story. 
For Israel, that story was God's deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh's captivity. For us, it's the gospel of Jesus dying and being resurrected to redeem us. He paid a debt he did not owe so that we might be saved. So what do we do? We direct our obedience upward and we pay it forward. We live a life that acknowledges that God is in charge and anyone else that claims that they are is lying and anyone that thinks that they are themselves is deceiving themselves. God is king. And what do we do if we want to live into that? We do it by staying close to God, which we do through obedience and relationship. It's about law and it's about love. And if we understand what the law is about, we know that it's rooted and anchored first and foremost in God's deliverance and his salvation and that we direct our gratitude upward and pay it forward so the world will know what we have always known, that God is king. And if you need to begin reorienting your life around that reality, recognizing that God is king and that you have a part to play in his kingdom, and you need to respond to that today, then I invite you to come forward as we stand and worship.